What surprised me more was the pace and the urgency that's surrounding a lot of the innovation that's taking place. And there's just a real sense of urgency that was relatively new for me compared to some earlier visits around how important the next two to three years really are to shape the future of a lot of industries, whether it's technology or otherwise. And I think the recognition that there's a bit of a moment here, AI gets a lot of the headlines, but when you dig a little deeper under whether it's classical computing, semiconductors or otherwise, there is a bit of a moment here in terms of how quickly things can be commercialized and the opportunity set that sort of exists within. Welcome to Tomorrow's News, the podcast that cuts through the noise on venture capital and alternative investing. I'm Lucy Du, and I'm here to guide you through the exciting and ever-changing world of investing with my co-host, Gavin Ezekowitz, the co-founder of BFA Global Investors. Together, we bring you our take on the hottest discussions in growth investing and global markets, from Silicon Valley startups to the burgeoning markets in Asia and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, join us as we dive deep into the world of alternative investing. Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by Bell's family and associates. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice. It's a pleasure today to do something a little different, something we haven't done before. I'm going to interview my partner at BFA, the co-founder of BFA, Jonathan Bell's. He spent last week in San Francisco and LA at one of our... Investee Funds annual events. And it was an opportunity for him to meet some US institutional LPs and to also meet one-on-one with a number of the companies that we're investors in through our fund portfolios. Along the way, he also met some other fund managers, which provided some interesting contacts. And it was pretty clear that there are some themes, many of which are a little contrary to what people are talking about that have emerged. So it's great to spend a few minutes drawing out of him what he learned over the week. So Jonathan, it's a pleasure to have you on. We talk all day, but first time you're in the hot seat to be interviewed. I love it. It's uh, great. You'll enjoy it. We'll have you on again. It's an honor. Before we go there, I yeah. do want to ask something else though, because you were at the Lakers game. How was, was the game? What was it like sitting next to Snoop? Was it exciting? Yeah, apart from the fact I hadn't slept in 24 hours and Lakers fans aren't the most rational fans in the world, it was an incredible experience. I think everything good about Hollywood is encapsulated in that 90 minutes to two hours that was there and seeing LeBron and Steph Curry really at the peak of their power is pretty incredible. Glad it worked out, yeah. Fantastic. I know you love basketball. Let's get into it. So you came away from your few days in Palo Alto with a lot of excitement around mm. companies and investors and really how much innovation is going on, lots of true innovation. But what really stood out for you thematically? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I've always known that you know, Silicon Valley and LA is a real hotbed for innovation. But what surprised me more was the pace and the urgency that's surrounding a lot of the innovation that's taking place. And it's one thing to be chasing your tail and just doing it for the sake of innovation. But what I saw was a combination of the reality of the macroeconomic environment coming to the fore, whether it's kind of pressure whether it's on the funding side or interest rates or the geopolitical environment with China, et cetera, and also the wealth of capital that's following the innovation now. 
There's just a real sense of urgency that was relatively new for me compared to some earlier visits around how important the next two to three years really are to shape the future of a lot of industries, whether it's technology or otherwise. And I think the recognition that there's a bit of a moment here, AI gets a lot of the headlines, but when you dig a little deeper under whether it's classical computing, semiconductors or otherwise, there is a bit of a moment here in terms of how quickly things can be commercialized and the opportunity set that sort of exists within it. So a little bit of an inflection point, I think, post-COVID and reality of things not only things can be done quicker, but the tools that are at people's disposal really are apparent and are available. And there's a lot of excitement, I think, around where that could go. A lot of people do talk about AI, particularly lately, and potentially as big as the internet. But I think you spent some time with some of the semiconductor companies yeah. and at some of the bigger issues around compute that are going to be required to execute the dream of the potential of AI, the good dream, the positive dream. What are your observations in meeting with those companies? And obviously, this is something I've learned a lot from you over the years, Gav, is in terms of sell the news a little bit, right? Everyone's talking about AI, but what's really the real game? And what I came away with was that the real game sits really underneath underneath the AI and all the layers that actually make AI potentially possible and revolutionary. None of this will really occur if we don't figure out different elements of how to solve the end of Moore's law, which essentially means computing cannot increase its capacity by two times and reduce the cost by two times um, as we go forward. And therefore, all the question marks that exist with AI outside purely the regulatory ones or whether it's good or bad just won't really occur unless we solve some of the things around the computing and the technology. Some of those things that came up Quantum computing, of course, would solve that immediately. That's one major innovation that people are keeping an eye on. But also what really stood out for me was that classical computing has a long way to go as well. I think it's really easy to say the days of chips are over or the traditional way of thinking through things are over. But in many regards, a lot of the innovation was coming on as an example how to improve latency across chips and processes rather than just simply say we need a whole new model of how to deal with computing and that type of thing. And then I think efficiencies in the system and recognizing that the entire model is so reliant on so few players who own just incredible IP around the semiconductor and all the implications that has. And the question is, where exactly can people focus on to break down some of those barriers in terms of the supply chain, et cetera? Some of them just frankly can't be broken. And that was another realization, which we can talk a little bit more of, was there are frankly just a, a number of the big players that will continue to have massive influence and that's okay as well. But I think the real game that came out of it was how efficiently can we use what we have and then realistically move forward and break some of the existing code and rules that's really defined the technology for many years, right? Decades. I think it's an important observation. I think there is certainly a monolith of companies that control both the to build advanced semiconductors and then, of course, very few companies that have the tools to do so. But it's interesting you mentioned it because there is a need for a great leap forward in terms mm -hmm. of compute power. Otherwise, it's just going to be too expensive to put AI in the hands of every consumer will buckle oh. under our own weight, right? Yeah. And I think one of the things you mentioned to me, and we've talked a little bit about, is it it feels like it's perhaps closer in terms of that compute power or that and some of those great leaps than people may be aware of. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair. On one hand, obviously Moore's law is ending, but on the other hand, 
the cost to execute and the cost of delivery of some of these new technologies has rapidly declined. And a playground, one of the managers we're very close to will point to things like the hydrogen plane, essentially going from series A to the sky in two years or relativity space. Another example, their 3D printing rocket going from a concept to in space in three years. And a lot of that is defined by exactly that. It's the ability of how quickly things are conspiring and working. And I think humans tend to think pretty linearly in terms of how we go through the world. And it's hard to understand that kind of asymmetry and convexity that can apply in this space. And that to me is also really exciting when you think through potential investor returns and what can be achieved if truly the commercialization scale has reduced and we have taken that leap. And I don't think you can apply it to all industries. And certainly many of them will lag and take forever or be held up in political or regulatory or military hurdles, et cetera. But there's enough evidence out there that the leaps are happening a lot quicker and companies are going essentially from zero to whether it's in the sky or under the ground a lot quicker. And when you combine that with the urgency and the pressure and the weight of that importance that's being attached to it, I think it's a confluence of really interesting things. Part of that weight has been the positive weight of capital, right? I mean, with a lot of capital that these companies have consumed, yes, they've moved faster, but they've had the benefit. I think the common view would be that perhaps there's less capital around. The data is kind of interesting. The data says that at the end of 2019, there was about $100 billion of dry capital in venture in North America. Today, there's around $220 billion. Yeah, powder. So there's a lot, but everyone says, oh, the capital raising so tough and whatever. What was your sense in speaking to some of the LPs and some of the companies? Does it feel like capital is still available for the best ideas or does it feel tougher? I think you've summed it up pretty well in terms of there's a lot of capital out there, no doubt. Lesser quality companies are not getting funded. Just anecdotally, a number of the funds that we spoke to are the ones we've invested in, or I'd say anywhere between. 20 to 35%, maybe 40% lower fund sizes where they're ending up or likely to end up. That obviously reduces immediately the type of ticket sizes they can write in the deals when they have a fixed set of investments and have to reserve for future investments. So that's an obvious one. But I think I also saw the flip side, which is like a flight to quality that you see in the markets. You also see a flight to quality to the best companies. So Gav, both you and I have been on a calls with three companies, right, from existing fund managers this week, and nearly all of them are looking at doing extensions and are overwhelmed by demand. So I think the best companies, what surprised me a little bit was probably the weight of capital that's trying to pull into those opportunities, probably even more than ever, and leaving these guys with more options, I think, than ever. And then the valuation, certainly in the deeper tech side, I don't think have been affected as much by market movements at all. And to some extent, even on the consumer side, there's been some realistic adjustments. You have to be careful when you look at some companies like that and see the ones that have truly been marked down, should they have been valued in the first place at such high marks. But a lot of the best companies are continuing to get a lot of interest. That's to your point. There's an amazing amount of dry powder. And I think the other point is there's a lot of new LPs entering the arena because a lot of LPs, more recent funds, haven't had any returns or any DPI yet. Probably existing LPs will re-up at smaller amounts than they had done previously and take probably longer to do so. I think there's been a lot of new interesting entrants into the fund space. So companies like the big guys you think about, the NVIDIAs and Intels, et cetera, and research labs and obviously LPs out of the Middle East and otherwise that are trying to strategically position themselves to see the best companies and see the best 
opportunities and be in there from the ground floor. And that's, I think, creating an interesting dynamic in terms of more option for the funds. I think it's taking them more time and more work, but it certainly doesn't feel like a total bear market. There's a lot of cash around. I think that's fair. It's uh, curious that so many of the funds who are wholly American in every way, they all sort of seem to have some connection to Australia. It's kind of interesting. You must have talked a little bit about Australia when you were there. What did you hear? What are people's impressions of our venture ecosystem? Does anything stands out? Yeah, I think apart from the usual misunderstandings around everything from whether we are still back in the 1980s or 1970s in terms of how we live and, and operate, I think the reality is that Australia is really interesting for a lot of companies and for a lot of businesses and funds at the moment. A couple of founders that I met who were pretty advanced down the line in critical infrastructure in the tech space both said there isn't another democratic country in the world that as well positioned as Australia to partner with some of the technologies and the infrastructure. So that was really interesting and enlightening. I think there is actually a real push for some of the American European companies to set up base here, leverage the relative safety and I guess our island status, which gives us a lot of benefits in terms of building critical infrastructure. That was a big takeaway. And then I think in terms of the venture space, it's still relatively unknown, I think, for a lot of the founders and the fund in terms of what really motivates people in Australia outside mining and property. And the more you dig in a little deeper and let people know of kind of the different things that Australia is doing, whether it's the research labs or universities, et cetera, there's been a lot of real interest to partner, to partner with. And it makes a ton of sense when you think of, obviously, our resource base here and the different advantages we have naturally. I was pleasantly surprised. And I think there's a lot to be said for how we can contribute. It's really a question of how quickly we can keep up with the trends because my observation, obviously, in Australia is things take more time and people get stuck on generally on ideas for a long time. I think you've seen similar trends, whereas I think things move super quickly and things fail quickly in the US. And that's not a bad thing either. <laughs> whereas you can't have a perfect idea or a perfect situation. I just wonder if we can really keep up with those demands, right? I don't know what you think, Jeff. But yeah, no, I think that's a good observation. Look, the mm -hmm. positive tone is always great to hear. The desire for people to visit, to get to know, the sense that this is a country that's open for innovation, that's a good place to live and work, mm -hmm. those are all positives. We're quite fortunate that there's such a strong ecosystem of venture GPs, uh, of founders who have an Australian heritage for such a small country. And there's an awful lot of talent and that bodes well. So yeah, hopefully some of that can spring some life into some innovation in Australia itself. It's good to hear. Before we close, always interested to hear, is there a single idea or theme that you came away with that the most compelling, the thing that stood out loudest for you in terms of a place that you think it's worth spending a lot more time? It's a good question. And I probably won't answer it in a specific industry because I don't think that was my major takeaway. I thought I would probably come away thinking you have to invest in XYZ, whether it's 
semiconductor chips, quantum computing, or mining tech, et cetera, or whatever it is, but I didn't really come away with that. What really struck me, which surprised me, obviously, I've spent a lot of time in Asia and I'm an Asia bull in many respects. Part of the takeaway was I wouldn't bet too heavily against US innovation and US growth right now, which is interesting. It felt like when I worked at Goldman in the States for a period, it felt similar in the tech kind of space with the greatest brains and the greatest technologies from all around the world, whether it was Israel, Middle East, Europe, US, and Australia, we're all converging and building businesses. And it's easy to look at the downfall of downtown San Fran and LA and occupancy rates and triangulate that and say, therefore, Silicon Valley at the end. I don't think that's right at all. I think what's happening there and how quickly innovation is taking place, as I mentioned, is significant. And and probably linked to that is the incredible power that the companies like the Intels and Samsung, the AMSL and others are wielding in terms of that change. And it's much more collaborative than you might anticipate, which I think is a big shift in what might be seen traditionally. And then probably one other point I have to mention China, because obviously what we do is with Asia, I think there's a tremendous respect towards China. That was an interesting takeaway. I don't think the conversation was us versus them. It didn't feel at all like it was a kind of repeat of previous Soviet or Japanese or South Korean fear of the opposition. I think a lot of the conversations were, it's amazing what China's done, how quickly it's done. It's pushing us harder. It's pushing us to be more competitive and understand supply chains. And frankly, most people recognize there isn't a world where China doesn't have a significant influence, whether it is on semiconductors or on innovation and growth. So a lot of the conversations were, let's cut them out. It was very much how quickly can we protect ourselves in terms of having the IP and the technologies in mind. Hopefully, that's a world where China is also relevant and continues to be useful. So I think that was a big takeaway in terms of how the world sees China, even though it has issues selling or potentially doing things with China. I think there isn't out of any real negative sentiment to the country as a whole or the innovation that's taken place. So that was a nice thing to see as well. Yeah, fantastic. A great summary. I think Wrapping up a couple of thoughts. The first one is rumors of the demise of venture or innovation are greatly overstated. We should never be surprised by that. It is important to recognize that one of the benefits of technology is actually the speed at which new ideas can take from a commercialization perspective. And that is a function of technology itself and a function of capital. And there has been a lot of capital devoted to some really important ideas, which in themselves have a flywheel effect. We're excited, obviously, that we're invested in many of those ideas. Great having you on. I've got to interview you again. We'll find a way to carry on this conversation. Thanks very much for your time today. Jonathan, I think that was excellent. Yeah, it was very cool. And uh, you'll be going back, I think, in the summer, so you can dig even deeper. (laughs) <laughs> Tell me what I missed. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jonathan. Have, Have a good, good day. day Don't forget, you can subscribe to Tomorrow's News on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.